Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of our elders here for our church. We're really glad to have you with us. If this is your first time, thanks for, for joining us. And we love having children be a part of the service. Uh, so, so they are welcome in here. But if they become a distraction for you or, or for others, you're free to make use of our well-child nursery just across the hallway. During my sophomore year of high school, at our marching band's state championships, on a scoring system of 1 to 100, my school got second place by only three-tenths of a point. Yep, we lost to Southwestern High School, the Mustangs. They're from somewhere in Lancaster County, I think. But God has really worked in me over the years. He's grown me. He's matured me, matured my heart. So I'm not bitter about that loss to Southwestern High School. No, I'm not. What I'm actually bitter about is the fact that two years later, during my senior year, at the same marching band championship, we got second place once again, losing the title to the very same Southwestern High School and losing by exactly the same margin, only three-tenths of a point. So it was a devastating pill to swallow our senior year. And I'm sure you can imagine how fine young people and burgeoning young adults like my peers and I would have, may have handled these events. We blamed the judges who couldn't recognize a world-class performance when they saw it. We blamed the Southwestern music teachers who were unwilling to take the kind of risks we had taken with our show. You know, if we had only kept every one of our formations within the 40-yard lines and refused to do anything innovative or creative, we could just as easily have racked up easy points. We blamed the poor students at Southwestern High because we were from Philly, after all, and, and we really felt bad for them. We, we at least got to ride the school on buses. These poor kids from Lancaster surely had nothing but horse buggies. In the end, we had all kinds of answers for why we had been denied, no, robbed, of a title two times within as many years. And our answers covered every possibility except for the most obvious one. We could say anything about the situation, anything that is, except for they were better than we were. Isaiah chapter 6 was recorded for us by the prophet Isaiah under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit to help me and perhaps some of you with this very predicament. The predicament we find ourselves in when we can describe our situation eloquently from so many angles, except for the most obvious and most important angle, that of it was nobody's fault but my own. It was nobody's responsibility but my own. I got what I deserved. And friends, please understand, it is impossible to experience God's good pleasure 
without first taking responsibility for what we actually deserve. It is impossible to experience God's good pleasure without first taking responsibility for what we actually deserve. That means that judgment must come before restoration can follow. But most people find this message unwelcome. And so this morning, I've been praying for us leading up to this morning that that we here at Grace Fellowship Church might see what we typically don't want to see. On your outline, you can see the things that I'm praying that we'll see that we typically don't want to see. An incomparable king, an unclean people, and an unwelcome message. Let me pray for our time, and then I will read Isaiah chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, please help us to hear your word, to receive what you have for us, that we might stand before you as those who can declare you holy and ourselves unclean, and our guilt might be taken away by the representative you've appointed for us. Please help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and Yahweh removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a terror... Excuse me, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, as we work 
our way through this chapter, let us first see an incomparable king. Verses 1 through 4. Isaiah sees an incredible vision of the God of heaven sitting on his throne, and we should take note of a few things. First, let's note when he sees the vision. When he sees the vision. In verse 1, he dates it to the year King Uzziah died. Uzziah, you should know, had the longest reign of any king over the nations of God's people to that day. He had reigned for 52 years. Only one king after him would surpass him, Manasseh, who had reigned for 55 years. And Uzziah's long reign of 52 years had offered the nation of Judah a long stretch of stability and prosperity so that his death would really shake things up and cause anxiety. But you should also know that his reign did not end well. He's, he's labeled in the books of Kings and Chronicles as one of the few kings of Judah who did right in the eyes of Yahweh. However, at the end of his life, he grew proud and he went into the outer room of the temple planning to offer incense on the golden altar found there where priests were only allowed to be. And the priests wouldn't let him do it. They had to fight him off. And because of his hubris, God judged him and gave him leprosy, a skin disease, until the day of his death, making him perpetually excluded from ever entering the temple again. You can read all about this in Second Chronicles 26. This background matters for a few reasons. First, it highlights for us the insecurity of the time. Isaiah might be the only prophet in the Old Testament, who dates his call from God by means of a king's death rather than by means of a certain year of a king's reign. And he's highlighting the incredible insecurity facing the nation. It matters, second, because it sets up a contrast. King Uzziah presents a deep contrast with the one Isaiah will in a few verses call the true king, Yahweh of armies. And it matters, third, because Uzziah stands actually as a literary picture of the entire nation. We've now heard five chapters in Isaiah of Judah's corruption and their great sin. They had started well, but they did not end well. Their confidence, we've heard of their arrogance in their religious service to Yahweh, and we have heard of the debilitating disease of their sin that has kept them bedridden as a nation and excluded from God. And so from the first verse of this chapter, Isaiah is going to show us what God will do about all he said in chapters 1 through 5. So that's when he sees the vision. Let's talk about what he sees. What he sees. In verse 1, he claims to have seen the Lord. He also says this in verse 5. But though he's seen the Lord, the only thing he can describe is the train of his robe, which fills the temple. And he can describe the angelic beings that surround him. He tells us of the seraphim, and we don't really know anything about seraphim. uh, Other than that, the Hebrew word means something like burning ones. They must shield their faces from the king with two of their wings, and they cannot allow their feet to touch holy ground. And so they're covering their feet with two wings and flying with their other two wings in midair. 
And this scene is so majestic and ominous that in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shake at the voices of the seraphim, not even at the voice of God. At the voices of these supernatural servants of God. And the house fills with smoke, which is just like when the high priest would go into the temple on the Day of Atonement when he entered the inner room of the temple where Yahweh was enthroned above the cherubim, above the Ark of the Covenant. And he would offer incense to provide smoke, some cover for himself. Because if Yahweh sees a sinful human being, his perfect, glorious majesty must smite such a one. Because he is not just any god, he is special. That's what the seraphim are are crying out three times. He is holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. And let's not get hung up on the religious language. Holy is just a word that means special. There's no one like him. Special, special, special. Unique, unique, unique. There is no one like this God. This is what Isaiah sees. Very briefly, let me mention where Isaiah sees this vision. In verse 1, he tells us that the train of his robe fills the temple. He tells us that he is in the temple at Jerusalem, the place where the the Old Testament narratives tell us Yahweh is enthroned above the cherubim. Isaiah, in a vision, is ushered into the Holy of Holies, the inner room, the private sanctuary. Not just the room that King Uzziah had tried to go in to enter incense, but the next inner one, the most private one, the one that nobody was allowed to go into except the high priest, and that but once a year. Why does this matter? Isaiah is explaining his vision in the most grandiose terminology available to him. He wants his readers to know that this wasn't just an ordinary dream one night, and it wasn't even a frightening encounter with an angel. He has come into the presence of an incomparable king as they have known him within his most sacred space in the most sacred place in the temple at Jerusalem. These first four verses of Isaiah 6 just drip with splendor and terrifying majesty. And actually they don't drip, they burst with splendor. And this sets us up for what happens next. What must happen for a mere mortal to survive this encounter. Verses 5 through 7, we see an unclean people. Just as King Uzziah serves as a representative of the entire nation, as described in chapters 1 to 5, now Isaiah himself will stand as their representative before the throne. Isaiah 6, verses 5 through 7, I'll read it again. It's so important. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. We saw last week in chapter 5 that six woes were pronounced on the wicked nation of Judah. Woes being curses, the opposite of blessings. 
Six of them had been pronounced on the nation. And Isaiah now declares in verse 5, woe on himself. Woe is me. And the reason for his curse, the reason for his woe is because of his lips. They are unclean. They are defiled. They are unacceptable, as are the lips of the people among whom he lives. And friends, when one with unclean lips dares to gaze on the majesty of the king of heaven, that person has no reason to expect he or she will survive the encounter. For five chapters, Isaiah has done nothing but speak God's words. How can he have unclean lips? Well, we could answer that question a few ways. We could say, well, things are out of chronological order. If chapter 6 is describing his calling to be a prophet, then chapters 1 through 5 must have been speeches that he gave after he had become a prophet. And they've been put out of order, out of chronological order, in the arrangement of this book in order to make an argument. And that would be correct. That is what's happened. However, he's trying to make an argument, and we have to understand he has spoken for five chapters. And so we must also say that Isaiah sees here in chapter 6 his own greatest point of failure is in his place of greatest service to his divine king. You see, his declaration of unclean lips is a confession that Even as a prophet who has done nothing but speak God's words, he has nothing of his own to offer that should make him acceptable to Yahweh God, his king. And in making this declaration, he does not put himself in a special or unique position as though he is the only one in the world to have unclean lips. No, he dwells among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah sees himself as a part of these people, as a representative of these people, the same people whom this book has spent five chapters so far condemning. And so the only way for Isaiah or for the people of Judah or for any member of the fallen human race to see the king, Yahweh of armies, the only way for that to be possible is for Yahweh to send a servant to go grab a coal from the altar, a burnt sacrifice, and bring it back and burn off those unclean lips with it. And in so doing, according to verse 7, to take away their guilt, to atone for their sin. And atone is another one of those big fancy religious words. It just means to cover it over. Your sin is covered. Like an insurance policy, we've got you covered. Every one of us needs the purging touch of God to make us clean. And our church community, as a community, needs the purging touch of God to make us clean. Friends, how does this apply? Please embrace the truth. This is how this applies. Please embrace the truth. The only way for humanity to survive an encounter with the incomparable king of heaven is for those people and communities to see 
their uncleanness, to see their defilement, to see their unacceptability, and to thus recognize how great is their woe, how precarious is their standing before a most glorious, most special divine king. Only when there is such recognition can cleansing then take place. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, you are, do not follow Jesus, you're not sure what you think about this king of heaven, please understand how backwards it is to think that we must first clean ourselves up before we can think of approaching God. This is backwards. And it's not only false, it is damnable. The person or community who present themselves to God as those who have cleaned themselves up will be blown apart by a single blast from his nostrils. There will be more on this in the coming chapters of Isaiah. And so whether you're here today and you claim to follow Jesus or not, what we need more than anything is to be honest about ourselves. Even if you have been a prophet your whole life. Even if you have been serving God. We need to be honest. And we can find freedom in having nothing to prove before him. So that we can come to full agreement with his assessment of our defilement and our rebellion. But perhaps you've already tuned me out. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some sitting here right in these chairs today who think they've heard all this before or that it doesn't really apply to them because this message is an unwelcome message. It has always been an unwelcome message and Yahweh knew it would be an unwelcome message. Believe it or not, this very message about how an unclean people can survive a meeting with the incomparable king, that message is the main thing that most people don't really want to see. And so that's where the text ends up, in verses 8 through 13. An unwelcome message. In verse 8, Yahweh is looking for a messenger, someone who can speak on his behalf to a rebellious people group. Isaiah volunteers, and in verses 9 and 10, He gives Isaiah his marching orders. And we must understand these two verses because these two verses are quoted in all four Gospels and the book of Acts in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uses these verses to explain why he teaches people in parables. John uses these verses to explain why almost no Jews ended up believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And Acts quotes these verses to explain why almost no Jews ended up believing Paul's message that Jesus was the Messiah. So we need to get these verses. What is going on here? Verses 9 and 10, let me read them again. And he said, this is the Lord. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. These two verses are filled with commands 
from God. All of the verbs here, at, at, at least in verse 9 and, and most of the way through verse 10, they are imperatives. They are commands. And what crazy commands they are. Hear, but don't understand. See, but don't perceive. Just imagine. Imagine the Lord Jesus showing up in our church with a command from his father. Thou shalt not understand today's sermon. That would be crazy. What would you think? God goes on to tell Isaiah in verse 10 to make their hearts dull, to make their ears heavy and to make their eyes blind so that they won't turn and be healed. What is going on here? We need to be really careful about this because if we're not careful, we will follow a well-worn path taken by many commentators and many Bible teachers who suspect that God is doing something crafty here. A surface reading of this chapter, if you take it in a vacuum all by itself, it may lead us to think that God wants Isaiah to trick people because God doesn't want to save any of them. However, if we read this chapter in light of Isaiah's full message in the context of his book, we should catch a few nuances. Let me give you some some context here. First, whenever Isaiah uses what we could call sensory malfunction language, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, whenever he uses that kind of language, he is usually describing people who worship idols. He's describing people who worship idols. In chapter 44, we have one of the clearest examples of this is all throughout the book. This describes the person who takes a log of wood, uses half of it to bake his bread on the fire, and then worships the other half as his God. It's a satire meant to mock the person who would be dumb enough to do that. And listen to the conclusion in verses 18 to 20. They know not, nor do they discern, For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes." A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the first nuance we have to get, is that when Isaiah uses sensory malfunction language, he's usually describing people who worship idols. And at the times when he's not describing people who worship idols, he's describing the idols themselves. Because you carved eyes on that thing, but those eyes can't see. You carved ears on there, but those ears can't hear. And therefore, here's the second nuance we have to get from the context of Isaiah. The reason Isaiah uses this sensory malfunction language for the sin of idolatry, and he never uses that for any other sin like sexual immorality or theft or neglecting the poor. He doesn't use sensory malfunction language. The reason he uses it for the sin of idolatry is because of this. Those who worship idols will become like their idols. 
those who worship idols will become like their idols. The idols have eyes carved right into them, but those eyes can't see. They have ears, but those ears can't hear. They have minds, but they can't understand. They have hands, but they cannot save. And those who worship them will become like them. Now, Isaiah introduced this theme at the end of chapter 1. We saw a hint of it when we were there. When he describes those who worship false gods at their sacred oaks and their cultic gardens, Isaiah then says these people will become tinder for the fire of Yahweh's fury, just like the wood of their idols. They become kindling like the idols. So Isaiah, once he taps into this theme in chapter 6, and he will develop it in the rest of the book. So when Yahweh here tells Isaiah to render his hearers senseless, he is not telling Isaiah to confuse the people and trick them so that they cannot repent and be saved. No, he is telling Isaiah to expose the main problem, which is that their worship of false gods cannot save them. They worship false gods who cannot save them. And then those people will become just as senseless as their idols are, and they will refuse to believe the truth so as to be saved. So yeah, we could say in a sense, Isaiah's ministry would have a deadening effect on the people, and that was his mission from God. But it's not because Isaiah's job was to deaden them. It's more because his job was to speak to people already dead, and he would make that deadness visible. So what is the point? Friends, people love to worship their false, dead gods. We love it. These gods don't demand anything of us, and yet they promise us that we can have whatever we want. And that's why Jesus spoke in parables to expose this issue as humanity's main problem. Those that heard his parables didn't reject the parables because they didn't know what they meant. No, they rejected Jesus' parables because they usually knew exactly what the parables meant. Upon hearing Jesus' parables, where he proclaims himself to be God's appointed agent, to be the son of the owner of the vineyard of Israel, to be the one with divine privilege and kingship. They knew this meant they couldn't continue having their way, and so they decided the only thing they could do was kill him. This is why they rejected Jesus, and it's why they rejected Paul's message about Jesus. How does this apply to us? Please, don't ignore the message just because you don't like it. Don't ignore the message just because you don't like it. You cannot clean yourself up enough to face this incomparable divine king. Your best efforts will never be good enough. The prayers that come from your lips are like vapor that vanishes in the sun's heat. Your service to those in need can never make up for the cosmic treason you have committed by loving yourself or by living for fame, or glory, or sex, or money, or power. You see, we still have all of these idols today that have eyes, that, but they cannot see, and they have hands, but they cannot save us. Children, when you do something wrong, please don't make excuses. 
Don't blame your sister or your brother. God hates this. Be willing to admit when you have done something wrong. You will never grow close to Jesus unless you learn to do this. And I say to all, please don't ignore this message because in this message is incredible hope. Because in this message is contained implicitly the fact that it's not up to you. You can be cleansed. You can survive your hearing before the throne of God if you have someone else to represent you. Someone who is pure and clean. Someone who has already been accepted into God's presence on your behalf. Someone who can speak a good word for you. And someone who can give you standing based on his merits and not your own. Because then your sin can be seared right off your lips. And your guilt can be removed. And your transgression can be atoned for. There is one who came from God's throne room in heaven to make these things possible on earth. And he continues to be rejected by those who continue to think they can clean themselves up. But those who recognize their desperate sin sickness can draw close to God through him. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, who are we to stand before you to even try to do this? We ought to be destroyed. And yet you have made a way. Lord, we cannot clean ourselves up. Please help us not to reject this message, not to resist it, not to become deadened and hard-hearted toward it. Please open our eyes and open our ears that we might turn and be healed. Help us to turn away from our false gods that cannot save us. Help us to turn to Jesus every day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.